Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. While a lot of people will do walking, the thing that people aren't doing is strength training. And if you want to be jumping out of your chair when you're 90, then you need to keep your legs strong. And it's one of the absolute you know, best protective things you can do to keep things going for the longer term. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. Show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. One of the greatest gifts of being a doctor for older adults is the constant reminder that life is fragile, finite and precious. That is one of the sentences taken from my next guest's book called Staying Alive. Dr. Kate Gregorich is a geriatrician and internal medicine physician. She works in both acute hospital medicine and community settings and has completed a PhD looking at the impact of positive psychosocial factors in the development of frailty in older adults. And we have a conversation today all about looking after your parents and looking after yourselves with the goal of looking after your health in older age. Lifestyle medicine is a core feature of Kate's clinical practice and nutrition, exercise and sleep are obviously integral to developing plans to optimize her patient's health. And her approach goes beyond physical by working with people to identify their own priorities and values. On today's show, we talk about how to balance the need to change health behaviors to improve longevity with the need to enjoy today. We also talk about the importance of social and emotional well-being in any definition of health, the perspective of a geriatrician and actually what a geriatrician does in hospital, assessing someone's readiness to change and tips to motivate them. We talk specifically about sarcopenia. Now, this is a subject that I don't think gets enough attention And it's something that is a big, big problem in older age adults. So we define it and we talk about uh, mechanisms to try and improve it. We also talk about the prescription for healthy aging. And this is a teaser. 
squats, purpose, and plants. And you'll know exactly what that means later on. And also the impact of loneliness and how that activates a stressor response. This podcast is for information purposes only. I do highly recommend that you share this with loved ones and also friends and family that you feel that could benefit from it. Please give us a five-star review and comment as well. We try and go through all of them. But without further ado, here is the podcast with Dr. Kate. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Oh, that's good to hear. Uh, so <laughs> we were first connected uh, when I spoke at um, one of the lifestyle medicine conferences for Australasia and you were comparing uh, the session. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the current state of lifestyle medicine and what the general consensus is amongst medics in uh, Australia and, and that part of the world and, and how you got involved in it as well. Yeah, I think lifestyle medicine for me is absolutely essential to the way I practice medicine. And, you know, lifestyle medicine is a kind of new and fancy term for something that we've been really doing for a very long time. And, you know, I'm a geriatrician, so I'm a specialist for older adults. And the person who founded geriatrics was a UK physician called, I believe, Marjorie Warren. And her amazing contribution to getting people better was to get people out of bed and to see what mattered to them and get them moving. And, you know, it's just such a simple thing, but it was revolutionary at the time. And in my day-to-day practice, the thing I love about being a geriatrician, I get to work with this amazing team with physiotherapists, with dietitians, with social workers. And we really, we don't look at making things perfect for our patients. We look at saying, what really matters to you and how do we achieve that? And, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a, some misperceptions about lifestyle medicine, that it's very alternative, that it's not mainstream, but it is absolutely integral to the way I practice medicine at a very large mainstream hospital. Yeah, I I, I love that about Marjorie. I had no idea that that were, she was almost like, you know, the, the founder of, of geriatrics and the simple act of getting people out of bed and moving was sort of the, the core. I mean, it makes so much sense. And ju- just for, for those who don't know what a geriatrician does on a day-to-day basis, why don't you give us a, um, a, a little insight, a window as to what geriatrics is and and, and what your day-to-day is? Yeah, so I'm a medical doctor and I am a physician. So we do the same early training as cardiologists, gastroenterologists, as endocrinologists. Then I've sub-specialised in geriatric medicine. And my day-to-day varies a lot depending on my day. I work in acute general medicine, so people who've just come into hospital unwell. I do some work in the community, which is really great and often so much more about you know, helping people really thrive in where they want to be. Uh, I do some work in rehabilitation. I do some work in perioperative medicine. Basically, I get to work all over the place. And that's one of the things I really love about my job. Yeah, that, I mean, it's awesome because I did a bit of um, Jerry's when I was training uh, to be a primary care physician. Um, I did old age geriatrics. I did, uh, sorry, old age um, uh, dementia, um, old age psychiatry, as well as general medicine. And um, it, it is amazing just how diverse this field is because it, on the face of it, you know, Jerry's is, is just defined by, okay, we're treating people over a certain age. I can't remember what it is in Australia, but over here, I believe it's 65 plus or depending on what hospital you go to. But 
that population just have such a diverse range of medical conditions but also social circumstances as well no 80 year old is the same as another 80 year old although medicine sometimes inappropriately classifies them would you agree what are your thoughts on that yeah and that is just such a huge part of what my job is and you know by the time someone's 80 they've lived a life they've had various different education they've had different work they've had different financial situation they've had different relationships and life experiences and all of these things come together to create someone's health status at this age and so yeah no two people are the same and we do have generic cutoffs related to age but two people who are 80 can be vastly different ages you know we've got leading politicians who are 80 and some of my patients are in their 50s and they've got geriatric issues and sometimes it's to do with, um, you know, bad genetic luck, but far more often it's to do with what's happened to them in their life. Yeah. So what, what compelled you to go into geriatrics uh, as a specialty yourself? What, what were your early experiences with the medicine? Look, it was a slight accident at the time. I'd started off training as a rheumatologist and I had my first baby and I was on maternity leave and I wanted to go back and there was a part-time job in geriatrics. And I absolutely loved it once I started. I love that I get to work in a really holistic way. I love that I get to work with an interdisciplinary team. I love that for my patients, it's not about, you know, making one aspect of their care perfect. It's really patient-centered care. And it really integrates not just medicine, but also a lot of the social things going on around them. I also get to work with really, really great other clinicians. The geriatricians tend to be very nice people. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I agree. Actually, one, one of my fondest memories working with um, a geriatrician was how they were fastidious on having a tea break mid ward round, and I loved that. Everyone sat around. You know, everything stopped. You know, obviously uh, outside of emergencies, and uh, I, that that sort of like homely, family orientated feel of the geriatric wards was really nice. And I think you know, getting to know some of the most incredible people the incredible life stories of uh, our patients is amazing. Uh, and I think Jerry's, particularly in the medical field, has got this um, inappropriate uh, chip of it being, well, just old people who are grumpy and you just throw some medications out and everyone's got blood pressure issues or uh, mobility issues, you're walking around the ward and that's it. They, they, we oversimplify it. Um, and I, I think, you know, that this is just so complex. Oh, it is. It's so complex. And that's, again, one of the things I love about it. You know, the physiology of aging is so complex and then seeing how that works out in someone's life. And, you know, the thing as well about my patients, and it's one of the lessons that I take from that and apply to my everyday life, people have got this real wisdom when they've lived a lot of decades. And people, you know, resilience is a learnt skill and tends to go up with age. And when I say to my patients, you know, what's important to you? No one has ever said to me, I want to live as long as possible. They all say things like spending time with my family. I, um, you know, work doing this charity work that I do. It's always something about human connection, something about helping. And, you know, it's such an important thing for me to keep mindful of in my everyday life. Yeah, let's let's talk about that, actually, because I'm interested Given your extensive experience being a consultant in geriatric medicine, what are, what are the key 
learnings that you've had from patients themselves? What, what are the, the key things that have you've picked up by speaking to people that you've put into practice in your own life? Yeah, definitely the importance of human connection. And, you know, health, well, we often have such a reductive approach and it's all about the physical, but social and emotional health are just as important as the physical side of it. And that means human connection. And that's been something which unfortunately lately has been lacking just because of all the restrictions around COVID. And it's really brought home to me how important that is to helping people recover when they get sick. The other thing is that happiness isn't about, you know, material possessions. Again, I've never had any of my older patients say to me, I'd be happier if my house was bigger or if I had that designer wallet. It's, it's always you know, pay, uh, one patient I remember saying to me, I want to get better because I want to go dancing with my wife again. And they were in their 90s and they'd gone dancing for the last 70 years. And I think the other thing as well, when I see people who are doing really well in older age, they're still curious and they're still learning. And people sometimes have this perception that as you get older, you lose the ability to learn new things, to have new ideas, to contribute. And it's just not true. Yeah, there's so many examples of people doing fantastic things in that area. Yeah, it was it's interesting. When I was chatting to uh, Dan Leverton uh, about um, the aging mind and stuff, one of the things that uh, we, we talked about was how aging almost needs a, a bit of a rebrand. Um, life, you know, from the perspective of a 20-year-old or even a 30-year-old sorts of it seems to stop age 65 when you retire but in reality like you said you know a person who ages well is someone who still maintains their curiosity is still excited to learn new things and that actually has some benefits to uh, cognitive health and, and physical health right yeah absolutely and a huge part of that is purpose and the research around that is so interesting people who've got a higher sense of purpose it it's actually protective against dementia and it's also protective against cardiovascular mortality. And I think it's when people still feel like their lives matter, they still feel like things are important, they take care of themselves. But I do suspect there's also some biological positive impacts from that. And when it comes to the reality um, of of actually trying to instigate a lot of these things, and we'll talk about a few more in terms of nutrition, the microbiota, but how do you cultivate purpose um, from the perspective of, of someone who is uh, from that older generation, uh, perhaps has some ingrained uh, um mannerisms within themselves or someone who, who's listened to this who who might be middle-aged as well how do, how do you cultivate that that feeling of that human connection that purpose and 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 spark that curiosity yeah and it can be really challenging especially if people have got strong preconceived ideas one thing i do is i always ask my patients what's important to them you know what matters to you what do you like to do all day and try and frame things around that because I think if you, things don't matter to someone, they're not going to make any positive lifestyle changes. And I guess as well with my patients, I do often see them with their sons and daughters who are in their 80s. And particularly if the parents have got age-related diseases, they, those sons and daughters are often extremely motivated to make some positive changes themselves. Yeah. And, and you know, in a ward environment, let's say you're discharging someone and, you know, how, how do you how do you tap into that readiness to change and and how do you actually cultivate 
um, sort of that that energy for them sometimes. I mean, you spoke about, you know, what motivates them, what inspires them. But, you know, I'm just trying to think from the perspective of someone who's listening who might have grandparents and they are limited by their mobility. They're limited by their, their connections and their ability, particularly right now as well. What, what kind of things have you come across that might be insightful for those people who are trying to look after their parents as well as look after themselves as they as we grow older? Well, I guess when they're leaving the ward, they're often very motivated to change and do everything they can to get home. Being in hospital is an amazing motivation. No one wants to spend time with us, and I get that. It's fine. Uh, but, yeah, around the home, I, I think as well, It's I think often the biggest thing is helping people overcome ideas about what they can and can't do. And, you know, a lot of my patients in their 80s, I get some pretty um, – I get some real looks when I tell them they need to start doing exercise, especially doing resistance training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, to their credit, they listen, they go and see the physiotherapist, they do their exercises. Um, But, again, it's just about framing it for things that matter to them. Mm, yeah and and when it comes to let's say uh diet (laughs) and and you're trying to suggest to someone who might have been eating the same thing uh or you know has a particular taste and they're reluctant to change do you have any any sort of top tips or or things that you've been successful with when it comes to trying to instigate changes for the benefit of their health and and mental well-being yeah it's it's really um it depends on the group. So with my particularly frail older adults, it's often more just about getting those kilojoules in. But when people are a bit younger, when they've got a bit more sort of scope to make positive benefits in the longer term, uh, you know, I think one of the big things about diet, and I'm sure, you know, you know more about this than I do, but I think one of the big things about diet that gets missed as well is that enjoying food needs to be absolutely central. And that so often gets lost and we make healthy food sound, you know, awful and reductive. And for anyone at any age, if they're wanting to make positive changes, it really does need to be framed as, you know, making food that's really tasty. Yeah, yeah. And and within the context of them actually being able to cook food as well. I mean, a, a lot of patients that I've come across, you know, they they do have carers, they do have um, uh, support mechanisms that they have to rely on. Um, and, and trying to fit that within the context of what is achievable for them is quite is quite challenging as well are, are there are there things that you've developed perhaps in your practice or even things that you've come across within the community that can help with improving the nutrition of the of the of the increasing aging population that we're going to be dealing with now and, and in the future malnutrition is actually a huge issue in frail old adults and, you know, I've even seen things like scurvy, which, you know, you just don't expect. And when people are socially isolated, perhaps they live alone, they've got limited financial resources. And again, they don't, they don't have that motivation to cook for themselves. You see some people who live on very restricted diets and it's often just trying to get, meet people's really basic nutritional needs. And it can be a very hard thing. You know, we've got certain programs where we can get meals on wheels, um, and like food delivered. We try and get families involved. But um, for the most vulnerable, the biggest issue is just meeting basic dietary requirements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so one of the things that I remember learning um, during my nutritional medicine master's was about the aging microbiome. And you've talked about this in your book as well um i should mention the name of your book what was the name of your book again? staying alive 
Staying Alive, okay, <laughs> aptly named book. But you talked about the aging microbiome um, uh, and and what happens uh, during that. And I wonder if we could just double click on what happens to the microbiota as we age, why that happens, and what kind of things we can be thinking about in terms of additions to our diet, but also the suite of lifestyle interventions that we have to mitigate against the uh, reducing diversity of that population. Yeah, so exactly as you said, the diversity reduces with older age. But even more than that, there's a study that came out of Ireland quite a few years ago, and it showed that people who were frail living in residential care had a less diverse microbiome, and they had different predominant bacterial species to people who are more robust and living in the community. Now, with this sort of thing, it's really hard to prove chicken or the egg, because often in residential care, diet isn't great. But, and, but you know, it's highly plausible but that with the reduction in diversity of the gut microbiome, with the changes in the predominant bacterial species, that you are getting an increase in exposure to harmful bacterial products. And this could be potentially a driver of frailty because frailty is itself associated with immune dysfunction and inflammation. And so, you know, we need more research in this area, but... I, you know, the way I take it is that I think it's all the more evidence just to keep eating your vegetables, eating that huge diversity of plant fibre and, you know, the stuff that our garden, you know, gut needs to stay healthy. Yeah. Do, do, do you have any perspectives on supplementation, specifically probiotic supplementation, um, vitamin D and um, even protein uh, supplements as well? So uh, I guess, so with the, with the probiotics, there's some evidence for constipation in older adults. I guess my kind of reluctance with probiotics, a couple of things. Number one is that you're only looking often at one or two species, comparing that to a super diverse gut microbiome. The other thing is I don't think taking a probiotic, you know, you can't grow a seed in concrete. So if you, a probiotic's not going to replace giving your gut microbiome all that fiber that it needs. Mm. I, I love that analogy, a seed in concrete. I'm going to borrow that one. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and with vitamin D, which is commonly low in, in uh, the older adult population, uh, do, do you have a, a suite of sort of things that you tend to look out for? or Look, not particularly. Vitamin D is, is so complex. And we supplement when it's low, definitely. Um, there's not convincing evidence for giving vitamin D routinely to everybody and with vitamin d again it's really interesting it's we i i use you know one tablet once a day usually giving people intermittent high doses is actually linked with falls mm. and there's wow, been a couple, I didn't know that. yeah yeah there's been a couple of studies looking at that so giving like monthly high dose vitamin d seems to increase falls and it's not entirely clear why um but again with bone health I think that the approach around that has often been a bit reductive. And, you know, we have this thing of we give vitamin D, we give calcium to get the bones as strong as possible. But, you know, bone is a living dynamic tissue. Bone has a very good blood supply. Bone responds to the stresses going on about, around it. And so diet is one part of it. But you've also got to move. You've got to stress the muscles. You've got to keep all of that strong to tell the bones to keep turning over and keep making new bone. Yeah. 
on on the subject of bones and and uh, musculoskeletal health i wonder if we could double click on um sarcopenia uh, i don't think it's talked about enough from a nutritional point of view mainly because people who are perhaps interested in nutrition and well-being are of a younger generation and they haven't come across sarcopenia uh, until perhaps one of their you know grandparents is taken to hospital or the they become uh, immobile for whatever reason could we describe what sarcopenia is why it's so troublesome in the older community and, and what kind of uh, lifestyle nutrition and other uh, interventions we have to, to try and treat it? Yeah, sarcopenia is a really large problem in older adults. And in countries like the UK and Australia, the biggest cause of later life disability is actually inactivity. And again, that relates to sarcopenia. And so a lot of factors contribute to sarcopenia. So disuse is a big one, but it's also related to obesity. It's related to diabetes. It's um, it's related to, and there's a lot that we can do to improve it. We touched, you mentioned before protein supplementation, which I then didn't follow up afterwards. And a low protein diet in older adults is linked to worse outcomes. And, you know, I do see a lot of people who are having a poor quality diet and part of that is not enough protein. But again, there's no good reason you can't get all the protein you need from food. And it's highly achievable to get it. But it's just that for various reasons some people can't quite manage it but with that it's always my preference to try and get things through food but the other part of sarcopenia is to do strength-based training and that's something that I think the earlier you start the better and you know particularly women we often think of strength-based training as you know young guys getting giant muscles in the gym but you know really it's women who start off with a lower peak muscle mass than men and that plays out in older age with osteoporosis and with, you know, sarcopenia to the point that they're struggling to get out of a chair and end up in a nursing home. Yeah, yeah. When it comes to, um, there's a few concepts there. So there's there's, there's malnutrition, uh, there's immobility, and there's also uh, changing taste buds and uh, reduced secretions that can lead to food or the enjoyment of food not being as pleasurable as it once was before. Um, are there any strategies that we have to overcome those? And uh, are, what do we know about changing tastes uh, as we as we get older? I guess, look, seeing with my patients, it's most people do still they still have foods that they really enjoy. And I remember even one patient I had, and she had a stroke, and she had a nasogastric tube in, and she wouldn't eat enough of the hospital's various soft foods and thickened fluids to maintain her nutritional needs. And so, you know, we started to get the family to bring in this really creamy rice pudding. And she just would eat so much of it that we got the nasogastric tube out. And so, again, people can find things they enjoy. And it's really keeping sight that even in, you know, really advanced age, even in really advanced dementia, that pleasure in food is often one of the absolute last things to go. Mm, mm, Yeah. And when it comes to uh, oxidative stress, inflammation, um, these things that underpin a lot of the lifestyle-related illnesses that we see, is there much we can do uh, for that in the age group above 65, 70 years old? Or do we really have to be focusing on the foundations today before we get to that stage uh, later on when it might be harder to change? There's definitely still evidence that, you know, even starting to exercise later in age is good for you. You know, meeting your nutritional needs is good for you. But 
the reality is for most of the patients I see, they've got very established disease and they've got diseases that had their genesis decades earlier. And I think we really do need to start thinking about what we want our lives to be like in the future at a younger age. And I guess it's how you make that matter to people in a really concrete, present way for something that's really abstract and a long way in the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, On the subject of that, so um, one of the things that uh, I always get uh, kickback on is whenever I talk about sleep and how, you know, getting a good quality duration uh, and the, the actual quality of the sleep itself is super, super important when it comes to improving longevity improving performance um reducing uh stress oxidative stress inflammation but for the older generation it it is so hard and it appears to get harder as you get older what do we know about sleep in older age and is there a role for other treatments for for sleep and are they as effective i'm thinking of things like cbt and and other supplements uh, as well for insomnia yeah, if, when I do talks to groups, um, older groups, the sleep is often where question time goes. That's what people want to know yeah, about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's certain physiological changes that happen with older age that can make it a bit more challenging. So we normally get a surge of melatonin that helps us go to sleep. But for older people, they'll often get the surge a little bit earlier and it's not quite as strong. And so you see these people who doze off in front of the television at 8 p.m. at night and then they can't get to sleep. It's also hard to get into really deep sleep with older age so people can be more easily woken up by things. But there's still a really important role for lifestyle changes. And, you know, that's still my first go-to for people is, you know, with sleep it comes from the time you wake up in the morning. And so it's talking through that entire day of routine. Are you getting enough exercise? What time are you stopping drinking coffee and tea? Are you drinking alcohol in the evenings? Um, what's your wind down routine? You know, how do you get away from the stress of the day? All of those things that are playing in together. And I do sometimes prescribe melatonin for people as well. And I do also sometimes recommend people see a psychologist for, for cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Do you find CBT is particularly effective for, for insomnia in, in older age groups? Look, the evidence would suggest that it is, but sometimes it some of my patients, and not all, but some of my patients have got a lot of perception, negative perceptions around psychology. Mm, and sometimes yeah. I think it's a bit of a thing in the older age group that they're not so keen on. it. Some people have also got just intractable habits that they aren't willing to budge with. Um, yeah. That so much you can, <laughs> like, like the patient who gets up at midnight and has a cup of coffee. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. there's only some things that you can change and if they're not ready to change that then yeah yeah but definitely for the people who are willing to engage with it it's definitely something and i guess the one caveat with that is people with dementia dementia itself seems to upset the sleep process and for that group sometimes we do need to use more sedating medications yeah do, do, is it true that we need less sleep with age it is not true. We still need our seven to nine hours of sleep. So it's a myth that people need less sleep. It remains just as important for a young adult as for an older adult. And, you know, sleep's a, I'm very into sleep, having had a lot of experience of sleep deprivation, thanks to my children who are not good sleepers. I, <laughs> I Sleep for me is an absolute priority because I know how much worse my brain works 
when I haven't slept. And it's one of these really good examples that, you know, again, we think about doing things for our longevity as putting it off for the future. But sleep, you get enough sleep, your day now is so much better. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you said that because it's a constant struggle, even with my parents and my parents' friends, when I try and convince them, I said, look, you, you 100% need the same, if not more sleep than I need. So this whole myth that you can work on six hours because you're of an age group now is, you know, it's just simply not true. So <laughs> I, I'm glad that we, we, we've, we've done that. And I, I think also we had to be careful about the use of pharmaceuticals from an early time before instigating lifestyle measures uh and you know we really have to get that foundation and before we start thinking about pharma um because i i feel that that leads to a vicious cycle and i have a lot of people that struggle to get off those different interventions as well oh absolutely and i i mean i've got patients who've been dependent on benzodiazepines for 40 years because they got started on them back you know in the 70s before anyone knew they were addictive and now they're at a point where they can't really get off them. And, you know, long-term benzodiazepine use is actually linked with dementia as well. And it, they don't, they, you know, they work at first, then they stop working and then your brain just learns to accept them and to crave them. So I, I use them exceedingly rarely. Yeah. Oh, that, that's good to know. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of people should, should be aware of that. You know, it is, um, it is a drug. It exhibits tolerance and withdrawal effects. And um, we, we, we want to be using them uh, much less frequently than perhaps what we have done in the past. I, I, I want to ask you some, some broader sort of questions about how you would design um you know, the the sort of perfect geriatric lifestyle uh, for someone who's trying to, you know, maybe geriatrics has got a bit of a um, uh, sort of triggering term, but perhaps for uh, my parents, for example, like what kind of things should we be telling them in terms of looking after their diet, their sleep, and, and the, the best sort of lifestyle hacks that you've come across in your years of experience in dealing with um, older patients? Yeah, so I guess if I've got to choose... Uh... I mean, number one, I can't choose just one thing because, you know, lifestyle is these things all build on each other. But if I guess I've got to choose one aspect of each thing. So with, with um, nutrition, I would just say, you know, try and make sure most of your plate is plants. You know, crowds out everything else, crowds out the ultra processed foods. You know, I don't I definitely don't advocate for a really rigid approach to diet, a restrictive approach to diet. But just, you know, instead of keeping it really simple, try and eat mostly plants. Um, number two, in terms of exercise, while a lot of people will do walking, the thing that people aren't doing is strength training. And if you want to be jumping out of your chair when you're 90, then you need to keep your legs strong. And it's one of the absolute, you know, best protective things you can do to keep things going for the longer term. What kind of exercises? Strength and resistance training. So basically, moving your muscles against a load. So it can be body weight or it can be weights. And as we get older, we lose what's called fast twitch muscle fibers. And these are the fibers that, well, you know, when you think of a sprinter, but it's also when you stumble on the street, they're the things that kick in quickly to stop you falling down. Ah. Yeah. And doing that also loads the bones. The bones then get the idea, oh, hang on, we need to work here. And so it also encourages bone strength. And the study showing that people do who do long term resistance training, you decrease your risk of osteoporotic fractures. That that's a really interesting point about the um, fast twitch muscles because a lot of what I see in the emergency department when it comes to 
um, uh, older patients is falls. So, you know, the simple stumbles, the simple, you know, the curbs a little bit higher, the, uh, the, the irregular floor, uh, perhaps the furrow on the end of your walking stick is, is slightly um, damaged and you don't realize. And then that leads to a tumble and that can lead to head trauma and at least an extended hospital stay. And unfortunately, that can sometimes be the just the the straw that that breaks everything at least to a catalogue of errors later on um and i think you know protecting our um ability and our, our ability to remain mobile using strength leg strengthening um uh, exercises is, is a fantastic fantastic tip are, are there specific leg exercises that you find uh, work better or the or easiest to attain i mean you can even just for some people just simply practicing standing up out of a low chair without using your arms and doing that five times, a few times a day. But generally, you know, squats are great. But generally for people, if you're not as young anymore and if you haven't done resistance training, I'd recommend finding an experienced and skilled trainer. I don't know if you have exercise physiologists over in the UK or physiotherapists, but it's not about working out to the point of exhaustion. It's about working out in a way that you're using proper technique that you can still do the exercises properly and expecting to build your strength slowly in terms of uh sort of cultivating that sense of a purpose i guess and, and community uh, are there things that you've 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 come across that are particularly effective yeah and this is you know something i i learned from my patients and the ones i see are the ones who've got these really meaningful social connections and I think it's loneliness is an interesting thing because some people are quite, they are, they, they, they like solitude and it doesn't cause them stress. But for some people, it's that feeling of disconnect. And I, I know some people and they live with their, uh, they live with other people. They might live with a spouse and they still feel really lonely. And when we feel lonely, we activate all those neurological and hormonal stress responses that over the longer term, can be so harmful and so it's really not about it's about quality not quantity yeah yeah you know loneliness i think is coming to the public um knowledge these days about how impactful it can be to um not just mental well-being but physical well-being for through the mechanisms that you just described there activating uh, stress response pathways and inflammation it's it's one of the hardest things I feel to try and tackle from the perspective of a primary care physician with eight or nine minutes per patient. You know, we might be doing a home visit. It's not like I can prescribe something to treat loneliness. Are there any things that you've come across uh, in your clinical experience, but also perhaps outside of that, that can try and help with this chronic loneliness that we're experiencing these days? Oh, look, I think it's really hard, and especially because loneliness is a stress state, and then people who tend to be in that state tend to be sort of a bit hyper alert and less, and even less able to connect with others. And, you know, I think really in a lot of ways, this is where, you know, social determinants of health and the individual, you can't pick them apart. And it's one of the problems we have in our society that we, we sort of, people who are frail and older often are hidden away. We don't have them. We don't see people out and about very much. You know, we all live in these houses and we've set up this really individualistic society that really falls down when someone hasn't got the same ability to get out and access it that they used to. Yeah, yeah. It's And, and it's been no more apparent than of late with um, 
uh, obviously lockdown and uh, the inability of people who are already uh, poorly mobile but have to shield uh, being able to go out and stuff. Um, so I think we need to find more effective functions of trying to treat loneliness these days. And and technology can be a force for good from from that perspective. I mean, the very fact that we're having this conversation uh, across hemispheres is is amazing. <laughs> it is, it is, and you know we've had to really readjust to how we connect. But there's been some, I mean, there's been some positives in getting more used to doing things over Zoom as well, you know, get used to see people you wouldn't normally see far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've definitely had that experience with some of my friends. Um, well, look, this has been awesome. I think, uh, you know, those are some really incredible top tips for, for people. And I think, you know, having the knowledge is one thing, but putting it into practice um, practically as a geriatrician, as someone who's trying to look after the health of their parents or trying to promote health to their grandparents even. And, um, I think your book and, and the content you put out there is uh, super useful. So thanks so much for that. Yeah. And I think it's really important to break down this idea of health as this you know, future thing, like so many of the things that you do that improve your chances of longevity do, are actually better for your well-being in the present. And a lot of ways refocusing on well-being in the here and now, I think is a really powerful way to improve that longer term health. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think when you when you get to a point where you have children and you, you're thinking about the future, you want to try and preserve as much of that amazing human experience that you have with your loved ones we can start thinking about how the lifestyle interventions can fit within that picture of you being healthy and, vit and, and full of vitality well into your 70s and 80s. And I think, you know, we need to reframe the way we think about aging to, as something to look forward to rather than something that you have to deal with uh, tomorrow, you know, at a later day in your, in your life. So Yeah, and now that most of us can expect to reach very old age, you know, it really is time to completely disrupt the way we think about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. Just to reiterate exactly what we talked about, squats, purpose, and plants. I think it's a really good uh, three-word summary of the whole podcast. And if you want to find out more, do check out my guest on socials. You can check out all of her links on the podcast page, thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash podcast. And also check her out on Instagram and the amazing book, Staying Live. It is an amazing manual for healthy aging, both today and the future. So it's definitely a resource for your parents or loved ones who are of the older generation. I hope you enjoyed listening and I will see you here next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.